Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doylestown Presbyterian Church. It's clear these days it's tough to make time. Schedules quickly become busy and calendars suddenly become full. To that end, DPC is excited to now offer this podcast channel, which will allow you to hear a recording of Sunday's sermon from that day's preacher. Whether you listen while taking an evening stroll, driving to and from the grocery store, or anytime you get a free couple of minutes, we hope it can allow for reflection and spiritual growth during your week. We also invite you to visit www.dtownpc.org to learn more about our church, our various ministries, and online giving opportunities. Thank you for tuning in. Today really marks the start of a new program year in our life as a church. For much of the last 18 months, we experienced canceled events and only virtual ones. And yet in recent days, we are seeing signs that we are starting to re-emerge. We've been able to gather indoors for worship now since May, and music rehearsals have just resumed. Club 456 met four days ago for the first time, and the youth will do the same tonight. Our senior adult ministry retreat begins on Tuesday, and next Sunday, we return with a full complement of educational offerings for all ages. Certainly, we will continue to do our part to limit the spread of COVID, and likely will have to adapt as we go, and yet, by all signs, we are on our way back, and we certainly hope that trend continues. One of the other pieces of our life that has occurred mostly during the pandemic is something that we're calling our Matthew 25 initiative. That name comes from the gospel and chapter with that number, in which Jesus, among other things, says that the ways that we care for those he calls the least of these who are my brothers and sisters, when you do that, he says, you care for me. In February of last year, our session voted to call ourselves a Matthew 25 congregation, joining with more than a thousand fellow Presbyterian congregations across our denomination. The next month, in our first virtual meeting, they appointed task force consisting of members of committees and two at-large members of our congregation to study how we might, in fact, act upon being a Matthew 25 church. Over the next six months, that group studied and listened, they explored and they prayed and then they returned to the session, again, virtually, and made the recommendation, which your officers approved, that we would focus our energy on the ongoing effort for dismantling structural racism, in particular, where it intersects with poverty. Since that time, the Matthew 25 team has been working to prepare for ways to help us to learn and to grow and to do so in a focused kind of way that is also nonpartisan. The first effort many of you experienced was the wonderful celebration of Black History Month earlier this year. Many others of you participated in the next educational effort by our M25 team of the racial gap wealth simulations. 
Next Sunday, we launch the next parts, an effort that will stretch over the months to come. We're calling it All Aboard the Matthew 25 Journey. And that name comes from a fact discovered by our team that Silas Andrews, the longest serving pastor in this church, the one for whom the building behind me is named, it's believed that he actually offered his house as a stop on the Underground Railroad. I find it fascinating to think that one of my predecessors used our parsonage, our manse, to be involved in the work against the most significant time of structural racism in our country's history. And so next Sunday, as part of the first All Aboard event, we're going to have a reenactor here who I'm told is the third cousin of Harriet Tubman, who was known as the Underground Railroad Conductor. And so in the months that follow, that team will continue to provide ways for us to come together, to learn, discover how, in fact, we might respond. And so I decided that I wanted to use the sermon today and the one next week to focus on Matthew 25. What it is, what it isn't, and what my hopes are for this journey together. We start today with the latter part of our emphasis, namely that intersection with poverty, and begin as we always do with Scripture. Reading that we heard from the book of Amos clearly makes a link between justice and poverty. And before we turn to hear those words again, there's three things I wanted to point out. First, Amos served at a time when Israel was at its peak in terms of geographic and, and financial prosperity. Things were good, but not for everyone. Secondly, Amos came from Judah and spent most of his career in Israel. Or put differently, Amos was from the south, and most of his preaching was in the north, which, as a native southerner makes him kind of a cousin in the faith. <laughs> and yet I think the most important thing, at least for our text to understand, is that the cities in ancient Israel had these walls around them, and the place where they would meet, there actually was this gap, about 40 feet. I measured it all, roughly between these two signs to my left and right. And it was there that there was this inner and outer gate, and it is at that spot that trials occurred. And so when someone had a case to bring, they would assemble ten jurors, and it would happen in that part of the city. That's what Amos was speaking about when we heard him say, Hate evil and love God and establish justice in the gate. We know that one of the primary acts of injustice in that era occurred between landowners and those who were working in the soil. That the landowners often would charge this exorbitant rate for those who were working the land 
and then take more than their share of the harvest. And so part of what Amos was speaking to is the way that that practice, that kind of injustice, ensured that the farmers remained poor. And so he was speaking up against that as a way of declaring how God, in fact, always has a special concern taken this step as a body of faith for that reason. We're not engaged in Matthew 25 primarily because our session or denomination thought it was a good idea. Rather than because we know that that was an ongoing focus for Jesus. His very first sermon found in Luke's Gospel, the chapters before where we read today, he bases his message on our call to worship. When Isaiah said, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And Jesus' second sermon is the one that we heard the opening words to, where the theme continues. As he says to his disciples, blessed are you who are for yours is the kingdom those words mark the start to something that in scripture we refer to as the sermon on the plain in Luke's gospel it happens on this level ground where Jesus begins to preach and offers instructions about all kinds of things you're probably more familiar with the sermon on the mount it's found in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is preaching from a hillside. It begins with the Beatitudes and then moves on to talk about all kinds of other things. In the Beatitudes, Jesus begins by saying, Blessed are you who are poor in the Spirit. And then in Sermon on the Plain, there's a whole different thing. And Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor. One scholar helps us hear that distinction when he says that Jesus' blessing of the poor neither idealizes or glorifies poverty, but it does declare God's prejudicial commitment to the poor. As part of my clergy renewal leave three years ago, I spent two weeks in South Africa. Part of the reason for going there was I'd always heard about the natural beauty of that land, in particular Kruger National Park, where you are in the car and the giraffes and the lions and the elephants and far more are wandering around freely around you. It was even more spectacular than I thought it would be. And coupled with other stops on that trip where I got to see the Indian Ocean for the first time, and when I went to the Cape of Good Hope, the southwestern point in the continent of Africa, that part of the trip certainly fed this unrepentant fan of travel. I love it. And yet my other reason for going to South Africa was because of a shared history between that country and the part of this country where I grew up. I don't have any particular memories 
of segregated water fountains or movie theaters. And as a boy growing up in Georgia, I vividly remember how the first six years of public school were in entirely white schools. I also learned that the pastor who preceded my father by a little more than a decade of serving the same congregation in Columbus, he had been forced to resign his pastorate when he was quoted in a national magazine, Look Magazine, of saying that whites needed to listen more carefully to their black leaders. He was forced to resign. And so it was that kind of history, both that shared history that led me to, to want to learn more about South Africa, who certainly had its own time of structural racism known as apartheid. And in my reading in preparation of that trip, I, I learned that actually some of those who brought that system into place drew from the writings of an Atlanta journalist as a way of suggesting that really was how it should be in their country too. And yet the last piece for that for me was the fact that our denomination, its newest affirmation of faith is the Confession of Belhart, which was approved more than 35 years ago in South Africa as a direct word against apartheid. So all of those pieces, both personal historical and faith caused me to want to go there and learn more and it accomplished that too. One of the real blessings for me before I left was the opportunity to meet with Dirkie Schmidt. Dr. Schmidt is a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary but when he was 29 years old he was an instructor in South Africa and he was present for a synod meeting of the Dutch Reformed Mission Church when they gathered in a Cape Town suburb known as Belfort. And it's while they were there, they decided there needed to be a new word from the church about what was happening in their land. And even though Dr. Schmidt wouldn't acknowledge this to me, everything else I understand is that he virtually worked in Taiwan. And he did it in the span of one day. And so in our conversations, he, he shared with me some of what had been happening behind the scenes as the Confession of Belhar was unanimously approved for study and then years later approved and eventually became part of our Book of Confessions too. And he said that the part of that confession that generated the most debate was one line the one line that says, God, in a world full of injustice and enmity in a special way, is the God of the destitute, the poor, and the wrong. In other words, in my words, the same as somehow, the poor might in fact be God's favorite. Now, just this week, U.S. Census Bureau reported on poverty rates in our country, the results from 2020. According to that federal agency, the definition of poverty is a household of four whose income, total income, 
is $26,250 or less. And in 2020, the poverty rate in our country uh, was 11.4%. Now, there actually was a, a pretty significant drop in 2020 due to some of the stimulus money that came from the Trump administration as 12 million people were temporarily removed from the poverty rate, which would have made the rate of added in 9.1, an all-time low. Looking at that rate of 11.4%, you look further and break it down by race. And these are the categories the census uses for those figures. That while the overall rate in our country is 11.4, on Asian Americans it's 8.1. For non-Hispanic whites it's 8.2. For Hispanics it's 17.0. And for blacks it's 19.5. some statistics to show that there's a larger number of poverty being faced by people of color than Iran. Thomas Sowell, who is an economist and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University, makes a convincing argument, however, that we need to be careful when we're looking at statistics, pointing out that there are governmental and political, geographic, and social factors that will influence uh, the results. So in a book called Discrimination and Disparities, he, he says we need to be careful not to assume that race is the only factor in the race. And I think that's a helpful reminder as we're engaged in this work of looking at that intersection between issues of justice and poverty. So what do we do here? This whole idea, God in fact has this particular focus on the poor. Philip Yancey, in his wonderful book, The Jesus I Never Knew, talks about how he had discovered in Scripture that there's this phenomenon found throughout the Old and New Testament of what he calls God's partiality toward the poor and the disadvantaged. And so he asked this question of himself. Why would God single out the poor for special attention over any other groups? And then he cited a writer, the Catholic writer named Monica Helwig, who listed 10 so-called advantages to being poor. Among them, she says, the poor know they are in urgent need of redemption. The poor know not only their dependence on God and on powerful people, but also their interdependence with God. The poor rest their security not on things, but on The poor can respond to the call of the gospel with a certain abandonment and uncomplicated reality because they have so little to lose and are ready for everything. After citing her complete list, Nancy then concludes, in summary, through no choice of their own, and though they may urgently wish otherwise, poor people find themselves in a posture that befits the grace of God. In their state of meekness, dependence, and dissatisfaction with life, they may welcome God's free gift of love. If that is so, it suggests to me in this Matthew 25 effort that those of us who have lifestyles above that poverty level 
have things to learn about God from those who do not. It suggests that this train ride has the opportunity to change lives, including our own. Let us pray. We give thanks, O oh God, for your unbreakable love. And for those around us who are able to point in new ways to your grace and your provision. We pray that as a community of faith, as we move through these months ahead, that it might be a time for us in which we continue to open ourselves to discovering what it is you would have us know. And that led by that discovery, we might respond in ways that bring about your will and reflect your purpose for all humankind. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on your journey of faith. Don't forget to check out www.dtownpc.org to explore all the ways DPC strives to be a bridge for Christ and a beacon of his love.